We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Jordan Armanese is booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's the sun. The fiery round ball of fun. Here's Scott Thompson. Again? Is that two days in a row? Is that two in a row? Are they, is that where? Yes, the judges say it's two days in a row. We've died well, I mean, and gone when to the heaven. sun is out, Scott, you've got to celebrate as often as possible. Let's see if we can make it three in a row. Put your head down and go. Uh, actually, oh, well, all right, maybe not so much sun, but certainly warm temperatures by Friday. Uh, we're into double digits. Could see 11, uh, but with that will come cloud in some unsettled conditions. But there you go. Some of the big stories that we're working on. Uh, this was interesting, and we're, and we're trying to find a piece of this uh, news conference as well. And that is that uh, sort of a, uh, would it be a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Would it be um, um, an order, um, a demand from uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, saying, Pharmacare, I need it by March 1st or there will be repercussions. And, of course, the reporters are all asking, well, what the heck does that mean? What are the repercussions? And, of course, uh, no response. Uh, but there it is, uh, Jagmeet Singh turning up the heat on the Liberals March 1st, a pharma care plan or repercussions, as he says. When questioned about a triggering election, he would just say repercussions. So there you go. All right, the Liberals may have the wedge issue they're looking for for the next election on parental rights. Both sides say they're protecting parental rights. How did we get here? How did we all of a sudden, uh, you know, start? Uh, why is Alberta in the news? Like, anyway, um, by the way, how's that mortgage? By the way, how those groceries? How the kids? What are you talking about around your kitchen table? And a senior ex-RCMP official uh, found guilty, sentenced to 14 years for leaking secret info. Uh, as, you know, top of mind stories, including interference by other countries. Um, is this an example? Uh, interesting, uh, interesting uh, story there and how it has evolved. Also, millennials... I uh, think they're going to need about 2.1 million to retire. And everybody's saying now, uh, forget retirement funds. Everything we have is going to the necessities. We'll talk about that over the course of this hour and the course of the show. Uh, obviously, as I said, Hammerhead Trivia coming up in a couple of hours after the 5 o'clock news. A pair of tickets to ones. The Beatles, not, <laughs> not a onesie, uh, ones, uh, Beatles number one hits at the First Ontario Concert Hall. How apropos with the day today. Saturday, February 17th is the show. So we'll get you your Valentine's Day thing early and a four-pack of tickets to the 2024 Canadian International Auto Show in Toronto could be yours too. So that's all coming up. Also, we were, we were talking about this the other day and we're going to touch on it with the Hamilton Police Service about that uh, terrifying video of a Dundas uh, home invasion where they took off with the vehicles. Uh, very bizarre. We'll talk about that and safety moving forward. Also, interesting column from uh, Matt Gurney, uh, and, and he said, enough Canadian politeness. We need blunt talk on health care. Uh, another fascinating uh, 
viewpoint on this. And we remember during the height of the global pandemic, we promised we saw the weak links in our healthcare system and we were determined to fix it. And meetings with the premiers and the prime minister and it all looked hunky-dory and things were starting to, to settle down. And then all of a sudden, the population wave came in and not enough family doctors. So once again, the emergency departments are filled uh, just for different reasons. So again, where do we move forward? How do we move forward with that? We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little bit later. Also, um, business confidence continues to decline. We'll talk to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce on that and where we go coming out of a global pandemic and the next world, whatever it is, bankruptcy. Uh, we're hearing about that. Don Fox is going to join us to talk about that. And the total cost of car ownership. Uh, yesterday it was car theft. Now it's how much does it cost to actually drive one of these things? Is it worth it? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And the Boeing Bolts. We heard about this, uh, that horrific, just be terrifying flight. Uh, where all of a sudden a door that nobody knew was there because there was a panel in front of it. It was an auxiliary door that wasn't being used, a plug put in it, uh, as they say. And all of a sudden, boom, off it goes. And, and you know, they were at, I think, about 16,000 feet, so uh, not catastrophic, but uh, certainly the inspections that have come afterwards, uh, there's just one issue after another. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on this hour as well. And then we'll find out what's going on down south and Donald Trump and will he make it to the White House or will he get arrested again before he gets there? Uh, all that coming up and hope you hang around for it. I'm not sure whether you have seen uh, the video footage of it or not or where you saw it on the news or what have you. But, man, it is um, it's frightening to say the least. You know, it's bad enough when people's cars are getting stolen out of their driveways by people wearing hoodies, um, you know, right under the, you know, the surveillance of a video camera or what have you. Uh, but to actually boot in the door and then go looking for keys and anything else, uh, you know, car theft becoming a home invasion. What is going on? And uh, if you haven't seen it, take a peek at it. And uh, it is a quick blast of reality. Of reality. Let's bring in Krista Lee Ernst, Hamilton Police Service, and with us now, uh, Krista Lee. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. I am, and yourself. So far, so good. Uh, obviously, what we're seeing in this video is traumatizing just to watch it as a viewer, let alone it being your own house or having to experience it. Um, this seems to have gone to another level. I- I'm not sure what my question is. What are your comments on the severity of this? So great to have this conversation and, and talk to our community about exactly what happened and what steps we're taking uh, for this investigation. I have just released that we have located and seized the silver Porsche that was uh, one of the vehicles stolen in this, uh, you know, harrowing ho- home invasion, uh, which left vehicle owners without their vehicle. You did talk about auto theft, and it's important to note that you know, this is a home invasion and um, auto theft within our community is always a conversation that we have been talking about recently, um, especially within the province as well with the grants that are allocated to uh, the police service um, in the GTA. And we, we actually are uh, a recipient of that grant. Uh, we will be receiving $900,000 over the next three years. We're able to add two additional investigators and an analyst uh, to acquire trends and really give us the 
um, benefit of honing in on this um, additional increase of 14% uh, percent in 2022 alone. Uh, what can you tell us about the car that was seized? Can you tell us where or any information from that? Absolutely. So what I can tell you is that there was two vehicles that were taken in the home invasion, one of which is a Porsche. Um, through evidence, we did gather, um, we did find out that it was in the Toronto area. What that looks like as an investigation is, you know, making sure we have enough evidence, presenting that to the court, and then following that warrant submission process. So I can confirm that we did execute that warrant yesterday and uh, subsequently located and seized that, that silver Porsche. What happens after that is it's brought back to um, be forensically analyzed by our detectives. So a uh, car back, uh, one car back, but no suspects at this point. Is that accurate? Well, we, we have definitely have the four suspects that are outlined in that video that you did indicate. Right. And our primary focus remains on the identification and arrest of those individuals. So we, we do thank the community for anyone who has come forward, whether that be anonymously, whether that be submitting some home surveillance, business surveillance, dash camera footage that they felt uh, was suitable for review for our investigators. We thank all of those because it really does take a community to combat these types of crimes. And uh, I, as I said, our primary focus remains any information about those four suspects. Um, was this targeted? Do you know that? I, from what I understand, that uh, there was reports of a suspicious vehicle, the, the vehicle that the four got out of, uh, going by the house a few times. Uh, do, do you believe this was targeted? As in any investigation, we take all the evidence. So you've just outlined that, you know what, this vehicle we've seen went by this home several times before the incident took place. So what that tells me is that this is isolated. Um, we don't have reports of any similar home invasions or anything like that that happened on that night. So what that does identify for me as an investigator is that this incident was isolated. You know, uh, working towards... Um, calling it targeted, that takes several layers. And at this time, we, we can confirm it's isolated and targeted may be part of the investigation for sure. But I can confirm that we do not have any other home invasions within our community that happen in the same time frame, same suspects, and uh, within that vicinity. So, you know what, Scott, I'm going to say that this is isolated. Uh, advice or tips for concerned citizens? So like I said, it takes all of us to combat these crimes, and uh, we thank the citizens for this. Um, you know, crime prevention in general, I, I hate to talk about that when we're on talking about this tragedy and uh, what happened to these homeowners, but we're always talking about how, as homeowners, we can protect ourselves, whether that be your own surveillance system, um, whether that be via, via, uh, video monitoring or within our home, setting out an alarm, etc., or it's just reinforcing um, our doors. You know what, Scott, I know that there's lots of videos circulating about instances like this. And, um, you know, there was one that I viewed yesterday that showed an attempt on a home invasion during broad daylight. And a simple deterrent was that that door was, was reinforced. 
So making sure we're having steel-on-steel doors where it's suitable. Um, And then maybe just that extra layer of metal. You go over to Home Depot. I know that in my home I have a clip that just goes at the top of the door and just gives that little extra layer of um, metal-on-metal protection for our doors because I know that mine is wood. So, So is that leaving me a little bit more vulnerable perhaps? But there is, I think it was $8.99 for that extra um, steel piece at the top. So I do suggest that our community members, A, have a surveillance system, make sure that they're protected, um, you know, having these conversations with their families, making a plan, um, should anything like this happen, um, that they are aware of how to call 911 and making sure that that resource is available. Uh, just quickly, Krista, uh, the, the homeowners, how are they doing? Uh, the victims of this uh, home invasion are detectives continuously uh, work with. Um, you know, as in any situation, we offer victim services with any incident that happens in our city. What those services offer is anyone that has been a victim of a tragic event. It offers a, a plethora of services that uh, we we do support through the process. So I do wish them uh, well. And, you know, it was stated there was no physical injuries. However, trauma comes in many layers. Yeah. We have to appreciate that this, this is a very scary thing. And uh, making sure that everyone is uh, mentally okay after that. Krista Lee Ernst with us, Hamilton Police Service, an update on that Dundas home invasion, home invasion leading to car thefts. One has been recovered. Thank you for the time, Krista Lee. Good luck. Always a pleasure, Scott. I remember during the global pandemic, my goodness, how many conversations did we have with all of those experts that you used to see on the news? Uh, you know, Dr. Bogosh, uh, them all. Remember the all? How do we, what have we learned from the global pandemic? How are we going to fix the obvious shortfalls in our Canadian healthcare system as the pandemic put it through the ringer and it exposed all kinds of weak links. It's not as great as we thought it was. Uh, where are we now after it seemed with the premiers and the prime minister getting together, we, we actually seem to be making progress and rolling forward. And then all of a sudden a population explosion. And here we are with overcrowding again. Uh, nobody with family doctors uh, putting pressure on the uh, on the uh, health care system, the hospital system again. And around and around and around we go. Uh, interesting column from Matt Gurney, columnist for TVO. Enough Canadian politeness. We need blunt talk on health care. Matt Gurney is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. Hope you're well, too. Are we too busy defending the healthcare system to fix it? Oh, I mean, as a rule, yes. Um, I don't know if that's the specific problem we have right now today, but in general, that's been a problem in Canadian healthcare for years. I mean, never, ever take a public policy program or a service delivery effort and turn it into a point of national pride. Like, when you are emotionally invested in something, it makes it really hard to look at it objectively and perhaps to make changes to it. We said, as I said in the preamble, that, you know, during the global pandemic, that's it. Uh, we're going to fix this. Uh, change is coming. The status quo is not working. How many times did we hear that? Where did that go? What happened? We stopped talking about it and we got distracted by other things. And the healthcare system is an interesting topic, right? Because there are some of us who rely on the system heavily and constantly. People who have uh, either themselves or have loved ones with chronic <clears throat> pardon me, chronic illnesses or 
uh, injuries that require a lot of maintenance. But a lot of us, Scott, and I, I certainly hope this applies to you, like I need my doctor like twice a year. Like I get mm. like a, a throat infection for my kids who bring something home from school and I need some antibiotics. Or in, in my case, I seem to be going for the world record of number of times I can break my ankle. So like I'll need to go get <laughs> a walking boot or, or something like that. So like my healthcare needs are fairly limited. I think a lot of us, most of us are in that situation. We have limited contact with it. We don't have a lot of experience with it. And it's kind of increasingly in recent years, every time we need it, we're like, wow, this is not working well at all. Whereas the people who either rely on it every day or who work in the system are sounding alarm bells, putting up red flags everywhere mm. and telling us that this is a system that is struggling. What is the blunt talk that is needed? What was the blunt talk during the pandemic we're not having now? You know what? I'm not even sure we had it that much in the pandemic. Um, mm. You know, I mean, I, I think we had more of it because uh, obviously we were we were in a very different situation. Um, and I think to the extent we had talked about it in the pandemic, it was kind of exactly, Scott, as you said a minute ago, which is when this is over, we're going to do something better. Yeah, but that's like I'm going to quit smoking tomorrow. Or I'm going to start my diet tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like mm. if, if you're not prepared to do it, then you're probably not going to do it. I think the one talk we need to have now is something I've noticed over the last, I'd say the last year, but I think it's really picked up over the last uh, six months, which is that the people I talk to inside the healthcare system are as worried or more worried than they were during the worst of the pandemic. And for Ontario, that would probably be kind of the first wave through to the third wave. I talked with a lot of system participants at the time, and they were very, very worried. And they seem to me to be at least as worried, if not more worried now. They're worried about different things, but the level of alarm is equal or greater than it was. And off the record, they're telling me in very blunt terms that we have a system that is struggling. And then I'm sure you've had this experience as a journalist and as a broadcaster where someone will tell you, Scott, it's the worst it's ever been. It's a nightmare. It's a catastrophe. And then you get yeah. them on the record. They come on your show and you're like, well, tell me how are things? And they go, well, you know, Scott, we have some challenges. Like, there seems to be something in the Canadian mm. character, and I think this is like a, like a civic flaw of ours, where we are averse to calling a spade a spade. We don't like to put things in blunt terms. We embrace understatement and euphemism. And I'm looking for people who want to say on the record that they are as freaked out as they're willing to tell me off the record. And I wish that wasn't as hard as it was in Canada. And it seems to be... You know, we often think Canadians are polite. I, I, we are. We have good manners in general. But I don't think what we're talking about often is politeness. I think it's just conflict avoidance. Hmm. It seems every discussion that we have regarding the healthcare system ends in a debate about public versus private. Well, we can't do that public-private, public-private, as opposed to, well, what are we going to do about the uh, overloading in the uh, ERs? What are we going to do about family doctors? We, it seems to be, well, it's either public-private. And these were debates we were having before the pandemic. Oh, I mean, Scott, I'll be honest with you here. I mean, I, I'm in my fifth decade now. I don't remember a time when we weren't having those debates. Yeah, like I'm, I'm getting up to a point in my life here when my health care needs, I mean, God willing, not anytime soon. You know, may I live a thousand years and all that, and, and same to you. But as you get older, your your needs for healthcare do go up. And I'm at the point now where it takes like a, a depressing amount of daily effort and concentration just to keep things working reasonably well. You know what I mean? And I can see coming down the tunnel that there's going to be a day where 
I'm going to need surgery or I'm going to have a lump that needs to be cut out or something even worse. And we're going to be having the same debates we've been having since I remember listening to radio shows sitting in the back of my parents' old K-car back in the mid-1980s. It seems we have these issues and, and, and we know, uh, what we need to fit. Well, we don't know what we need. We need, we know we need changes and, and we have these issues, but it seems that we don't want to actually have the discussion to fix the problem. In other words, it's public, it's private, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but even as I go back to, we can't keep doing the status quo. We sort of agreed upon that during the pandemic, yet it seems now we've forgotten that that's even happened and we're going back to uh, status quo. And also let's bring in uh, the population explosion. It appears, and, and, you know, I'm not blaming this on immigration. I'm a first generation Canadian and tell you a story about my parents, blah, 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 blah. But, but, but the it seems we're just getting a handle on this. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. There's a bazillion patients banging on the door because there's a wave coming in. Uh, and so it's almost as if we've taken one step forward and two back. Yeah, I think that's true. And as it was pointed out to me by a, a smart doctor, I know Dr. Zane Chagla, he's out your way. And yeah. it was like, a re- it was a really simple observation, but it actually made me stop a minute and go, Huh, I never thought of it that way. We are now moving through our four-year anniversaries of kind of all the milestones at the beginning of the pandemic. And one of the things that has changed in this country, and I know it sounds very simple, but it's actually really important, is that all of us are four years older now. Hmm. And when we've been looking at the baby boom, we've known that their demand on the healthcare system, that their, their per capita utilization of resources and money was going to be going up. And those baby boomers, God bless them, are four years older now. The generation before them, like I have a grandmother who's, uh, you know, in her 90s, and she's she's still uh, around. She needs a lot more health care than I do here. Mm-hmm. We have a larger population and an older population. Both of those things on their own was going to drive demand on the system up. We're dealing with both at the same time, and we're doing it, as far mm-hmm. as I can tell, with a smaller overall system because people have been flowing out of it and the signs of this man they're starting to pop up everywhere matt gurney columnist for tbo enough canadian politeness we need blunt talk on health care his latest matt as always thanks for the time be well you too there's an interesting report coming out of the ontario chamber of commerce and uh high inflation interest rates housing costs continue to drive pessimism in ontario's economic outlook according to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce in their uh, eighth annual Ontario Economic Report. Despite this, many businesses surveyed remain confident in their own outlook, uh, outlooks with about 53% uh, hoping to grow. To talk more about all of this, Claudia DeSantis, uh, DeSanti with us, Senior Manager of Policy, uh, Policy with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and co-author of the report and here now. Claudia, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Um, you said that, uh, well, before we get to that, how are we feeling? What is, what is the business, uh, feeling out there? What's the buzz? I remember as the pandemic was coming to an end, many thought it was going to be like the roaring twenties and the barn doors would blow open and off we'd run and spend, spend, spend. And I guess we did for a bit, but then reality and affordability sort of, uh, uh, sort of set in and we are where we are. What's the view now? That's right. We did spend and the impacts of that are now being felt. So 
This year, we found the lowest level of business confidence that we've seen since we began tracking this uh, some over a decade ago. Um, so only 13% of businesses in the province are feeling confident in the outlook of Ontario's economy. And this is actually down from 29% just two years ago. Uh, it's the lowest point that we've ever seen. We know businesses are facing a number of challenges, including inflation and interest rates but also infrastructure gaps and mental health and addiction crises, uh, and overall a sense of uncertainty about the economy. Um, you know, there's very slow economic growth, and so they're feeling the impact of that GDP over the next year expected to grow by just 0.4%. Um, but even more concerning than that is GDP per capita. So a measure of living standards, we're seeing that even though there is some growth, on an individual basis, people are less well off than they were in previous years. So deeply concerning, and businesses are feeling the impact of that. We certainly hear that Canadian productivity is down and, uh, and has been for a while. You say productivity must be our priority. Translate that. What does that mean? So productivity is, is actually the most important measure in our economy because it really comes down to um, how much money uh, people, households have left over at the end of the day and how much businesses have left over to invest. Um, so unfortunately, Canada for a long time has been somewhere near the bottom of all OECD countries on, on uh, labor productivity measures. And that's also a proxy for living standards. So we've seen a lot of uh, growth in population, a lot of that coming from immigration and, and some economic growth over the past few years but that hasn't translated at the individual level. And so there has been a lot of discussion about what's the point of growth if it's not being felt, um, it's not being felt by individual businesses and individual um, households and consumers as well. Uh, and so, you know, there's been a lot of effort from both provincial and federal governments to invest in the economy, grow the economy, a lot of EV supply chains, um, great work being done there, but there hasn't been the focus on productivity that we need. A lot of that comes from uh, investments in technology and innovation um, so that every worker in our economy is producing more and that they're, at the end of the day, bringing home a bigger paycheck and better well-off. Uh, we certainly know that uh, where our fertility rates are in this country and how we need immigration in order to keep uh, uh, employment, uh, the employment supply uh, coming in and such, employee supply. How did we get here? Because it seems that, you know, uh, population was supposed to be a driver of increased populations was supposed to drive the economy. And clearly we've we've sort of set ourselves up to fail here. Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. And, and Canada and Ontario have long prided themselves on being a, a prime destination for immigrants. And we should continue to see ourselves that way because we do need people. We need a lot of people. In fact, last year um, in our survey, 55% of businesses were reporting labor shortages. And this year, um, it's 40%. So it's eased somewhat, but still nearly half of all businesses are struggling to find workers. So we need immigrants um, because our population is not growing fast enough. The challenge is that on the other side of the coin, we have a housing affordability crisis. Mm -hmm. And so once the population grows, and we're seeing this conversation now with international students, um, we don't have enough houses to house these people. Uh, and so there's, there's a, a dual challenge of needing people, but also not having the infrastructure in place to really physically accommodate population growth. 
Um, and that's why we've really pushed at the chamber for a, a big drive towards housing supply policies and collaboration between the private sector and the public sector to um, get the housing that we need. The province has a target of 1.5 million houses and uh, a lot of good work's being done there. But that's going to be really important because, you know, even in our business confidence survey, one of the top reasons for pessimism this year was housing affordability. And that's a new thing. We didn't see that in the past. So um, I, I wouldn't want that this housing crisis starts to impact the narrative around immigration because it is absolutely true that we need those immigrants and that uh, strength of our province continues to be the diversity that we have in our workforce. Claudia DeSanti with us, Senior Manager of Policy with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, co-author of a report uh, talking about business confidence declining at this point. Claudia, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You as well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, we've talked a lot about affordability and such in, in, in discussions on how you how do people save for homes. Young people having a hard time, supply and demand, uh, a housing crisis, too many people looking and, uh, you know, not enough supply. It goes on and on and on. But there's a couple of stories uh, that are coming out this week uh, so far uh, regarding retirement. Uh, you know, people are too busy, you know, trying to just get the necessities paid for and aren't really thinking about retirement. Also, millennials thinking they're going to need about $2.1 million to retire. Uh, those are the sorts of conversations we're going to have with Don Fox, Executive Financial Consultant, the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and here now. Don, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, Scott, very well. Thanks yourself. And again, good. Thank you. And again, don't forget to join us Saturday morning to uh, talk about planning your financial future. So uh, first of all, Don, not enough. And this makes total sense when you think about it, uh, because people are dealing with affordability issues. Many sort of uh, foregoing or delaying uh, retirement con- uh, contributions just because the money needs to go to, to necessities and such. What's the fallout of this? Not even just now, but in the next 10 years or so. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It could be just short-lived and maybe they'll have more money later and be able to make up for what they weren't able to do now. But, you know, there's also the effect of lack of compounding of, of, of your returns because now you don't have the money working for you. So mm-hmm. it is harder to gain back that time, but you never know. Um, but we are seeing in general, people are, people are retiring later. Just four years ago, people re- were retiring on average around 62 years old. And now it's getting very close to 65 years old. So, you know, depending if you're in the public sector or private sector, private sector, they're retiring a little later than the public sector. But uh, yeah, overall, uh, yes, things are, are a little tighter. And that just means less money is available for saving for retirement. Are there plans that are better suited than others to get this done? So, okay, I can't afford a house right now, but I'm living in my parents' basement and I am stocking away <laughs> some money. So what can I do with it while I'm waiting for this? Uh, you know, and again, sitting down in every situation to give kind of general advice like that's pretty difficult, but every situation is so different. You put it into an RSP, perhaps uh, a first time um, home buyer savings plan that just came out. Maybe that's a route to go if the, if you qualify where you can put 8000 a year and over five years up to $40,000 and get a tax deduction like an RSP. And then on the way out, it comes out tax free, very similar to a tax free savings account. So it's kind of the best of both worlds if if this is something that you qualify for. Or again, the RSPs were, you know, always a great 
way to provide a pension for yourself. And and it really, you know, I always look at RSPs as just another form of pension. Speaking of retirement and, and such, uh, millennials, and, and, you know, we've always talked about this. How much, what's your number? What's the magic number? How much do you need, Don, to retire? Uh, which, of course, I guess depends on lifestyle. But uh, millennials throwing around, I remember when it was a million. Now it's like 2.1. <laughs> it, it, considering where we are, is that accurate? It's kind of funny in the office today, we're actually calling, talking about the $6 million man. And yeah. it might be the $20 million man, if you remember that 70s show. Yeah, really. Uh, Steve Austin. <laughs> and, you know, uh, inflation is part of it. But I think expectation of lifestyle is actually even larger. Uh, you look back at what did a retiree do, say, 10 years ago versus even now? And, you know, I want a vacation still. And people are just healthier. So, you know, freedom, we talked, you know, we're, we're, we've talked about this before and we'll likely talk about this again is perhaps we've got to look at freedom 70 versus that freedom 55. And because people are just, you know, very viral. They want to do things. They want to be um, playing sports longer. They're, they're not just sitting in Florida or, you know, the old rocking chair kind of thinking. They're, they're very active. And uh, that, those type of things cost money. So with that, you have to plan for those expenses. And, with, you know, and of course, therefore, you need more retirement funds to do that. Is it often that you can do more in retirement than you could while you were working? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this whole idea of people, that's a great question, Scott, by the way, because I think there's this feeling there's a formula. Well, you should be able to retire on 65% of your pre-retirement income. Well, yes, you could, but what do you want to do after you retire? And I would suggest that a lot of our clients are spending more money at retirement because they have one more one thing they didn't have when they were working, and that's time. Mm. And every day is basically <laughs> a weekend. So they're able to do the things they really enjoy. And certainly that honeymoon phase of retirement, which could be, you know, between five and ten years where they want to travel a lot. And they have the health to do it. And that's so key when you you have the health and you have the money, that that recipe generally means that you're going to spend a lot and do a lot of things and you need to have those funds to to accomplish those goals. Don Fox with us, Executive Financial Consultant, Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. Don't forget this uh, coming up this Saturday morning, uh, planning your financial future. Don, as always, thanks for the time. We'll chat Saturday. Okay, my pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It's interesting. We've been talking a lot about this of late, that being car theft. Uh, it started last week with a story that uh, police in southern, in, uh, southern Italy found containers holding 250, 250 Canadian automobiles that had been stolen from the Quebec and Ontario area. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, the feds announced that... Um, 121 million will be going to the province of Ontario to combat guns, ga- uh, gangs, and car theft. And of course, the, the horrific story, the t- traumatic story of a family in Dundas that gets a home invasion, uh, so they can take two cars, uh, in the garage. <laughs> And by the way, one has been uh, discovered as we've talked to uh, recovered as we've talked to uh, Hamilton police on that earlier on in the day. Well, enough of the theft. How about owning a car? Forget about replacement. Uh, what is the cost of ownership of a car? Gas, insurance, 
And what is the biggest expense? You might be surprised to talk more about this. Matt Hans is with us, Vice President of Insurance for RateHub.ca, and is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Scott. Do you think people are aware of how much it may cost uh, on a yearly basis to run the car? You know what? I don't think people may be realizing the fact that it's growing. Uh, especially because not everyone's buying a car every year, right? So if you bought your right. car a few years ago, you may not realize. But if you're in the market today, you might get a little bit of sticker shock when you realize that the cost of ownership has increased so substantially. Uh, how do you think the pandemic changed the way we look at all of this? Because I remember when we couldn't get new cars, used cars were a yeah. big deal. Yeah, that, that's really, to be honest, that's where both markets kind of took off, both new and used. I was just looking at the auto trader data again, and really, if you're looking pre-pandemic, we were all in pretty good place, but um, since the pandemic, new car prices have risen substantially. I'm talking like uh, the average used car price being around $50,000 pre-pandemic, upwards of close to $70,000 now for a new car. So I think it's around 67 right now. Uh, and used cars jumped up a lot too. And, and like you said, during the pandemic, used car prices even jumped up further. And that was more of a supply and demand thing that if people could get their hands on a car today, they were willing to pay more money sometimes even more than the price of a new car, depending on the year of the used vehicle. Um, but we're starting to see the used vehicle market kind of taper off. It's still higher than it was pre-pandemic, um, but it isn't seeing the uh, significant increases that the new car market is. Uh, I'm guessing if you ask people, you know, what's the biggest cost of maintaining a car? If you've got one, you get the obvious uh, answers, uh, price of gas, insurance, maintenance, what have you. Uh, do you think people really grasp the depreciation part of this discussion? I mean, there was always that old statement that what, the car lost half its value the moment you drove it off the lot. And I think people kind of just took that. And, and understand that kind of almost as a joke, but I don't think they realize the true impact and that it's only going to get worse as vehicle prices expand, so, uh, increase so much. And a lot of it's even the size of, of the electric vehicles that the resale value of electric vehicles, they cost a lot up front, but they don't turn a lot uh, when you're trying to sell them on the used market. They have a higher depreciation. And I don't think people are grasping the impact of the depreciation. This isn't like owning a home. You're not building equity. In fact, all you're doing is you're paying down your payment if you're financing it. And at the end of the day, you're not going to make any money off this. You're just hoping you get utility out of the vehicle through the course of its lifetime. How does this conversation change, though, Matt, once we bring a used vehicle into the picture? Because, yeah, again, so you, you know, you're getting a better deal yeah. because you've avoided that. 100%. You, you know, you're, you're paying a lot less up front, for sure. Um, if you're financing, you'll, you'll find that your financing rates are higher. Uh, used vehicles usually get a higher interest rate. Um, the payments would still be lower uh, relative, but you mean you're paying more interest when you think about that. Um, and the depreciation would be a lot less. Uh, the depreciation of vehicles flows over time. It's not like a consistent rate. Uh, it really does hit the most in the first few years of owning the vehicle where you're going to see the car's value depreciate the most. Uh, and then over time, and that depreciation is going to slow down. So in theory, yes, if you buy a used vehicle, you're not going to feel the same impact as someone who buys a new vehicle. Um, and really, someone who buys used vehicles is probably, you know, doing it because either they're planning to keep it for a long time or they're buying something cheap that they can afford in the moment. How what do, what does uh, the, the topic of electric vehicles, what does that add to this discussion? I, I think really what we're seeing, when you're seeing a rise in electrical vehicle adoption in the last few years. Um, and because those vehicles cost more to produce uh, and, and obviously cost more to, to buy and maintain. That's leading, I think, uh, 
helping to increase that that overall cost of new vehicles. So that's why I believe that when we're seeing, you know, like I said, it's gone from fifty thousand dollars pre-pandemic to upwards of seventy thousand dollars. You know, a big impact in that is the is the introduction of um, the electric vehicle market in Canada. Hmm, interesting. Um, what about how does that balance out with? Well, you know, I've got fuel costs that are down now because I'm yeah. using an EV, and my maintenance. I mean, they say there's much less maintenance unless, of course, the whole dang thing goes and you have to replace something massive like a battery. I mean, in our analysis, we factored in about two hundred dollars a month for gas. So, I mean, that it's not the biggest portion uh, of right. our ownership. Um, so, yes, you will save on gas. That's for sure. And the cost of electricity is you know, pennies compared to the cost of gas over over the year. Um, but the vehicle themselves, like we said, generally are going to be more expensive. So you're going to have a higher car payment up front. Um, you, you, the maintenance costs, while in theory, hopefully they're not occurring, you're not, the maintenance is a lot less. They can be more expensive. Car batteries themselves can be 20000 to 45000 for an electric vehicle that I've heard. So, you know, it really depends on what happens with, with the vehicle. Um, but... I, it's an analysis. I think that you have to feel comfortable one way or the other. I don't. I'm. I'm not personally seeing that there's much savings on the electric vehicle side, and I mean, I'm not swayed by the gas conversation personally. <laughs> uh, gas at 14 percent and parking at 14 percent, pretty much the biggest ones after depreciation. We forget about parking too. If you live in an urban area or even in an apartment or condo. And, then, and the one thing I'll say for our analysis, this is an average Canada wide, and, and we're making some assumptions of the average uh, user and the average person having. Uh, to pay parking, but that, that once again is very situational. So if you're living in a situ in a city that you don't have to pay for parking, then you're saving 200 bucks a month. But that is an expense. I don't know if maybe people factor enough when they're thinking of buying a car, especially if you live in a city uh, like Toronto downtown, which has you know extremely high cost uh, of parking. What is the cost of ownership of a car? Matt Hands with us, Vice President, Insurance for RateHub.ca. Uh, depreciation, the big one. Matt, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks again, Scott. You might remember the last time we had Keith Mackey on, Mackey International. We were talking about um, a door blowing out of a Boeing aircraft, uh, a door which uh, I guess wasn't there. It was a plug. It was sealed, and then a panel put over it. And then uh, mid-flight, I got with 16,000 feet, which I guess, thank goodness, it was at, at that um uh, elevation as opposed to anything uh, uh, higher, uh, the 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 plug blew out, which uh, which kept the door hole sealed, and now it looks like missing bolts were the reason. To talk about all of this, Keith Mackey, Mackey International, he's here now. Keith, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott, and I hope you are also. So far, so good, Keith. Uh, just some confirmation and an update on this. It appears that the bolts, or there were bolts missing from uh, this door before it was actually covered. What more can you tell us? Well, it seems somebody doesn't know. It takes four bolts to hold the door in place. Hmm. Now, why did that happen? That's what we need to find out. Because apparently, during the investigation, on other airplanes, they found other either loose or missing bolts. I'm not sure which. I've heard both stories. So how concerning is that to you that they found it on other aircraft? Because you can see maybe somebody got distracted, forgot human error, what have you. But on uh, more than one, how concerning is that? Well, it's very concerning because they're supposed to have a procedure. And my understanding of the procedure is they have two checklists that they go through. 
the way the checklist works is if you have to do something else in the meanwhile, you can move on to the next task and not close the first one out. Mm. So that's probably how the bolts got left out. They're probably laying on the corner of somebody's workbench out of Boeing. Wow. Uh, so at what point would this happen? Would this happen during construction of the aircraft before anyone took delivery? Well, it depends on how the aircraft is configured. Uh, it would certainly have had to take place during construction. <clears throat> the only thing I was concerned about is perhaps they might have removed some of the interior to put the Wi-Fi in the airplane, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So it seems to have been something that happened during the manufacture. Uh, and how would it, you know, and you explained this to us before, there's an option for extra uh, extra exits on a on an airplane. If they don't need it for the seat configuration, then they're covered up and on the inside of the plane. Do you even see a door? It's just a door panel. Is that accurate? No, you really don't see anything. Uh, uh, the situation is that it's much less expensive to build a door frame into the structure right. of the fuselage during construction than it is to add it later. And the idea is that as the airplanes age, they go through different configurations. Of course, they want to go through a configuration that pushes your knees up even tighter under your chin than it is now. So they can put more seats in, and if they do that, they need more emergency exits. And sometimes they put a galley in or move a galley, and they need the door to be able to uh, serve the, uh, the food to the galley. So um, it sounds really, uh, Keith, that they got lucky here, that this happened at a lower altitude, it, it, you know, especially on so many other planes, the situation. What does Boeing do now? How does it, how does it make uh, passengers feel comfortable? Well, they've got a real problem. Uh, what's coming to light now is that Boeing and the FAA are really big into this uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity program. And they're both hiring people who have not worked in the uh, aviation industry. And some of them are very seriously disabled. In fact, the FAA has a program on their website where if you have any of these disabilities, and I can read them to you, you can have an on-the-spot job placement to show up and walk in. And if a manager wants you, you're hired. Are you I'm suggesting then and just work that way? I'm certainly glad my you... doctor's office doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. So I, are you suggesting that, you know, the workers are just not being trained properly for this? Well, uh, we certainly have to consider that possibility uh, because the jobs that they're uh, hiring for at the FAA, and I assume Boeing's no different because Boeing has got a big web page about global equity, diversity, inclusion, they're looking for totally deaf people, blind people, missing extremities, partial paralysis, complete paralysis, epilepsy, severe intellectual disability, and psychiatric disability, and dwarfism. So if you happen to have one of those uh, disorders, you can probably pretty easily get a job at Boeing or the FAA. Where does this go moving forward, Keith? Uh, what is the FAA going to do to make sure this is monitored and doesn't happen again? Well, that's the big question right now. Uh, apparently, there's a lot of political pressure to do this. And I think uh, we hopefully don't have to learn by mistakes. 
my understanding is that 20-year mechanics at Boeing have been let go for new people that have never worked uh, in a factory or an assembly line or done anything like this at all. Now, surely they can learn to do it, but it isn't something that's going to happen in the next two or three weeks. Some of these jobs are very complex, and there's no substitute for experience. Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International, an update on Boeing and the missing bolts in a optional door on the plane and uh, obviously missing during construction. Keith, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking about this just the other day. Uh, Donald Trump continues uh, to wiggle his way through court. He really is just a perpetual court case. It's just ongoing. Delay, 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 delay. Uh, and uh, the latest from an appeals court uh, denying Donald Trump's claims of immunity when it comes to prosecution in uh, the cases regarding election interference. And, of course, uh, the insurrection or whatever you want to call it from way back when. So uh, what does this mean moving forward? We've had some guests on that have suggested it ain't going to happen. He'll never make his way to the presidency, that his legal troubles will stop him before that. Is that the case? Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Wayne, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am. Thank, and thank you very much for having me. This is very much, uh, Donald Trump is very much just an ongoing court case. Will this get in his way? Will this prevent him from running a campaign or even taking office if he gets that call again? Uh, that, that's, that's really the key question. And at this point, it's still very much in doubt because, as you pointed out in your introduction, the, the approach of, of Mr. Trump has been to undermine one of the very basic tenets of our legal system. Right? We, for, for centuries, countries like the United States, Canada, have held to the belief that justice delayed is justice denied. Now, in the common sense rendering of the term, that referred to you know, the Crown charging people and then failing to take them to trial in a timely fashion, leaving them hanging out in the wind. And our courts have just said, you can't do that, and if you do it too often, we're going to dismiss charges. Mm. What's happened now, and this is what's been stood on its head, is... We still have the same justice delayed, justice denied, except it's the public's right to expect the treatment of everyone equally before the law. That's what's being undermined. Because here you have a fellow, not the only one, but a fellow who is using the tactic of delay to try to prevent justice being delivered. In the expectation that if he delays long enough, he wins the presidency. Once he's president, he can essentially pardon himself and take apart all the <laughs> cases that are in the current hands of the U.S. Justice Department. It, it, and finally, finally, this is the first court that did this. The court legal system has, I think, begun to understand how big a threat this is to the integrity of the legal system. The court this week not only dismissed his, his appeal, they gave him seven days to decide whether or not to launch an appeal to the Supreme Court. Now, typically, you have 90 days. And the court's finally gotten wise to this and realized, no, 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 you're getting seven. And one can only hope that the Supreme Court will act in a similar fashion, deal with the matter expeditiously, and force Mr. Trump to face his day in court so that justice won't be delayed and justice 
won't be denied. So this verdict, uh, how this changes the conversation is how much will it delay it if he keeps going? Well, this is, this is I think, the catch. He has seven days. So Monday he decides, yeah. no, I'm going to appeal. He off he goes to Supreme Court. Supreme Court, if they have a, any common sense left and any respect for their own legal system, will in a matter of a week or two say, sorry, not listening, not hearing your case, go to court. And back he goes. So conceivably, uh, if the Supreme Court behaves the way the appeal court seems to suggest they should, yeah, he could be in a courtroom on the uh, insurrection charges by May. Um, and, sorry, go ahead, Wayne. Go ahead. And, and you know, even at long trial, six weeks, eight weeks, the man could be a convicted felon before the Republican uh, Party meets in convention. What do you think the chances are of that happening? I have my doubts about the integrity of the legal system, frankly. This is the first court that's actually reacted to what is an egregious strategy. I mean, can you imagine someone like myself, yourself, a personal care worker, an oil rig worker in Texas, managing to avoid going to trial for years on end? No, you and I can't imagine that because that wouldn't be allowed to happen. But it has happened, and the court has to decide whether, in fact, justice is blind and whether, in fact, all citizens are equal in the eyes of the law. It's going to be quite an interesting uh, spring, summer, fall when you think about it as all of this comes to fruition. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, he's going to you're going to see uh, a judgment soon around his business, and that isn't looking promising. Uh, especially since apparently one of uh, the witnesses in his trial, that trial, has admitted in another court that he perjured himself, his accountant, and how that may impact. It, it can't be good. Um, what the court decides in the case of his business dealings is, is one thing. Uh, he will continue to have to deal. Well, probably the longest running case will be involving the the cases and cases of secret documents he took with him because that's going to involve a very long process of discovery. And there he has a very sympathetic judge. Um, is, uh, is, is the Republican Party preparing for if he does go down? Are they having you those know, discussions? I don't believe they are. They remind you of lemmings approaching a cliff. <laughs> I mean, there, there's just no sense that they have any idea what, in fact, would happen Come July, if he is a convicted felon, do you actually go ahead and nominate him? And and how do you not? <laughs> Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, the future of Donald Trump as the court cases mount. Uh, Wayne, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you, too. Bye-bye. Juno Awards 2024 uh, nominees have been announced. There's so much to talk to Eric Elper about, whether it's the Grammys and the whole uh, Taylor Celine thing or, or Toby Keith, whatever. Let's bring Eric Elper on, music publicist and commentator. He is here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I can answer all of those. Uh, how about good, yay, ooh, mmm. <laughs> 
right. So let's start with Toby Keith, country yeah. performer, passes away, cancer, 62. Uh, I didn't know much about his career. I knew that he had a, a bit of a dust-up with the Dixie Chicks way back when. Yeah. But it was fascinating. I'm watching Stephen Colbert last night, and he did it quite a tribute to Toby Keith. Uh, talked about having him on his show many times and how he taught him about stereotypes and judging people. And he spoke quite highly of him. Yeah, you know, Toby Keith is one of these characters in music, and I, and I kind of, I, I kind of dropped that character name because look, he's six foot four. He was one of the biggest stars in the country music boom of the nineteen nineties when that genre grew up with big rock music like ACDC and Led Zeppelin and The Who, and all of a sudden you start hearing, you know, rock. Uh, you know, rock music mixed with country, and then his songs. And right after 9-11, that's when he started to become really popular with songs like Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, I Love This Bar, Red Solo Cup. He had a huge (laughs) booming voice and a real tongue-in-cheek sense of humor, too, that he can sing a love song as well as drinking songs. But definitely... Uh, you know, his bust up with the Dixie Chicks when the Chicks at the time said that they were embarrassed that the president of the United States was from Texas, their home state, and Toby Keith essentially wanted to, you know, kick him off of the earth. So, but yeah. he was one of those guys that you would think he would be an absolute staunch Republican, but he wasn't. He was actually a fairly moderate, independent, leaning toward the Democrat for his entire career. He just believed that you stand behind the president of the United States to lead America Hmm. into whatever direction that he wants. That's why he was able to stump for Bush and Obama and Trump all at the, you know, all within a decade of one another. Well, what does that say? Uh, What did he ever um, smooth things over with the Dixie Chicks? No. In fact, I think that, you know, he kind of did, um, he, he had his own battles with artists. There was a, a, a rumor that a very big and popular Rolling Stone magazine article that came out about 20 years ago um, had um, this unnamed artist and Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson um, paying tribute um, to something or other. And this unnamed artist is quoted in the article and saying, um, hey, Chris, don't get too political out there. And, you know, don't go too left-leaning for the audience. And um, the reason why he kind of stirred up people was, A, you don't tell somebody like Chris Christopherson, who actually served in the military, what to do when it comes to political stances. And B, it kind of came out that it might have been Toby Keith who said that he, of all people, who should be not telling anybody what to do with his music, especially in the political spectrum. So um, he kind of, you know, he had his battles, not only, of course, with his health, but also with other artists throughout his career. All right, let's bring in the Junos before we run out of time here. 2024 edition, Halifax, Nelly Furtado, uh, the host. What are we expecting? Yeah, we're expecting Charlotte Cardin is uh, leading the way with six Juno Award uh, nominations. It wasn't that too long ago, in fact. Um, back in 2022, um, she took home four awards for Artist of the Year, Single of the Year, and Album of the Year for her debut album called Phoenix. And she kind of sweeped up all of the major awards. And here she is again, having six nominations with Daniel Caesar and rising rock star Tuck close behind with five. So uh, that we're expecting pretty much a big party in Halifax. 
Uh, and they will embrace this, won't they? Yeah, you know, the the great thing about the Junos is if you ask people in the industry from, say, Vancouver, they may not be so happy paying $3,500 for a flight from <laughs> Vancouver to Halifax. But that's the beautiful thing about the Junos is it doesn't just stay in Toronto or Hamilton for all of us to kind of enjoy. Um, they like to spread the love and, and give the lo- those local economies a boost and also pay tribute to the city as a music city as well. And I think this is where, you know, Halifax is going to unfold to be a huge, huge epicenter for music. And uh, Nelly Furtado, the host, is going to be sure of that. And I think it was Hamilton back in 95, which was the first show where they allowed the general public just to buy tickets and come in and watch. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. You know, for a long time, it was essentially just a television show with an industry people. Um, but they decided to open it up as they should, um, because, you know, that's really what it's about. It's about the fans mm-hmm. getting a little bit closer to their their idols and the people that they love in music. That's why the Fan Fest, where people can go in and have autographs and selfies with people in the local mall is great. I mean, who wouldn't want to, you know, potentially hang out with Tate McRae or Allison Russell? Both are are huge nominees this year too. All right, can't let you go without your comment on the Grammys. And uh, I, I heard some people say this was the best telecast they had seen in a long time. I agree. Um, yeah, it was, it was fabulous, except for the you know that snub of Taylor Swift and Celine Dion. I mean, the performances <laughs> were right on, and I think that you know anybody that would have seen the Tracy Chapman Luke Combs duet of Fast Car, um, if they didn't cry, mm. they they need to go get their eye ducts checked out. I mean, that was it was phenomenal, and it ended on time, which is the best thing that people can say. Uh, so, was there actually a snub, or is this just a social media created crisis? I love Taylor Swift, and I will give any artist the benefit of a doubt when you win an award, no matter how many you've won, to get up to get caught up in the moment, to feel that excitement, to bring your team members up there, to take the award, and just go to the microphone. But you're Taylor Swift. And the entire night, the winners all acknowledged and will forever acknowledge the person that gave it to them, either Mm. by a curtsy or a thanks, or you gush over how big of a fan you are. This, uh, you know, look, the fact that the photo came out of Taylor Swift and Celine Dion really, really quickly after that show ended was a great PR move from her team. And as a publicist, it's something that I've noticed about how solid she has PR. So Mm. I think it was a snub. And I also think it's a little bit of caught up in the moment. Uh, do you think that Taylor realizes the stratosphere she's now in where anything she does, she's she's got to look like the like the superior states person? I think so. I, I think it's really hard because, you know, there's no playbook to any of this. And and even yeah. if you did take a look at past artists, there's not too many of them that survived in one piece, or at least not with a break in their mental health. You know, you take a look at those heroes that people will look at of like a Amy Winehouse or Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix. And it's like, well, they all died, but, you know, at the age of 27. So there's no real playbook on what happens when you are the biggest star of the planet. It's why the Beatles closed rank on themselves after 1967, after they stopped touring. Mm. Because there were only four other people on the planet who kind of knew what the band was going through, and it was each other. So I think she has to be a little bit more aware that she doesn't have to drop her new album name on the Grammy. She could have just posted it, not made it about herself. But I thought the same thing, Eric. I thought... Yeah, I thought the same thing, Eric. It's like, wow, you're pretty big to be doing this. 
Yeah, and and you you don't have to, and I think it 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 put all of the yeah. emphasis on on the future music that is going to be listened to rather than maybe celebrating the year that we had. But, you know, it served its purpose. It got people talking about it. And But, you know, she tweeted about it and posted on Instagram, and it probably had more more likes and more engagement than the entire Grammy audience put together. So she didn't have to do it, and she likes to do these things. But, you know, uh, you got to have a strong ego in order to do things like this. That's for sure. I, I, I can't wait for the duet with the hubby. Uh, Eric Elper with his publicist, music commentary, everything music is always. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. You might remember the name Sam Cooper. And, of course, uh, you uh, talked to him a lot during the initial stages of the election interference uh, discussion as he was a big part of the investigative journalism that went on there. A fascinating uh, piece uh, in the Bureau by him. Fake Chinese income mortgages fuel Toronto real estate bubble. I'm going to read you the first paragraph or so here. Uh, The whistleblower, a Canadian business school graduate, was staggered by the suspicious home loans he discovered in 2022 when he joined a mortgage approval team at a small HSBC branch on the outskirts of Toronto. He knew of suspicious surroundings, Chinese capital in British Columbia, but he had never witnessed uh, what he had seen or uh, when he worked initially in Vancouver Island. I'm paraphrasing here. When he arrived at the HSBC bank in Aurora, an, affili- uh, an affluent suburb of North Toronto, he discovered explosive growth in home loans to Chinese diaspora buyers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Chinese migrants living across Toronto were obtaining mortgages from HSBC while supposedly earning extravagant salaries from remote work jobs in China. In one example, an Ontario casino worker owned three homes, also claimed to earn $345,000 in 2022, um, analyzing data remotely for a Beijing company. Uh, since 2015, the whistleblower continued, uh, concluded more than 10 Toronto area HSBC branches had issued at least $500 million in home loans to diaspora buyers claiming exaggerated incomes or non-existent jobs in China. To talk more about all of this, author of the report from the Bureau, best-selling author, award-winning investigative journalist, Sam Cooper. Sam, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Explain how this works, Sam, because I think most people are just be blown away by this. Well, uh, the whistleblower was blown away. I was blown away. Uh, you know, this was, for me, a missing puzzle piece. I've been chasing the mystery of, of what was leading to just incredibly unexplainable home prices in Vancouver for over 10 years. And as you know, you know, I started, mm-hmm. I've started to dig into that in Ontario in recent years. I knew from my sources that the exact same thing called the Vancouver model of transnational money laundering was at work in Ontario. And, you know, just to boil it down before getting to the bank story, this is about how tremendous wealth uh, escapes from China, whether it's corruption money, organized crime money, or just people running away from that regime with anything they can take. They've got uh, capital controls there, but there's global underground banks run by organized crime that can assist wealth fleeing China. So that's what's happened in Vancouver through the use of government casinos and real estate. Uh, But I didn't know the banking piece fully until this whistleblower in Toronto came forward uh, to me because 
he had read my book. He had been following my work in BC. And it's, it, it is mind-blowing, both the, the methods and the scale. What he discovered was essentially cogs in a massive international money laundering machine that, uh, you know, anyone in the diaspora that has the right connections will be asked by organized crime uh, to open a bank account, receive all kinds of wire transfers from Hong Kong and China, you know, claim their job is either homemaker or in this case, what was discovered, a fake job in China with incomes uh, in my story from 345,000 and a little below that up to 760,000 completely fake jobs that um, a high school graduate, I believe, looking at these claims would say no one can earn earn that money in another country during COVID-19. Uh, and, you know, completely contradictory, as my story says, some of these people were hairdressers or part-time casino workers or homemakers and claiming these incomes. And yet my whistleblower found at scale, uh, this bank was issuing these loans. And, you know, it, it fit into a bigger piece of the puzzle, which is I knew from last year, FinTrack had reported the very same thing, uh, studying 48,000 transactions through banks. Uh, specifically focused on the diaspora, they saw the exact same patterns and said, look, when casinos were closed during COVID-19, international organized crime Mm. in this Vancouver model evolved their methods to include banks. What FinTrack left out of their study was this mortgage fraud that my whistleblower discovered. So in a nutshell, it is mind-blowing. That's the word that I can't get out of my head, the scale of this, just uh, and that our government allows it to happen. There's my next question. How is this not the responsibility of the bank? What about vetting any of this? How does this not, how does it take a guy like this to to figure it out? Well, uh, to his credit, and really, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of whistleblowers by now, and something I find in common is intelligent people with principles start losing sleep, can't hold inside uh, what Hmm. they know, feel isolated in their workplaces, they may go to upper management, in this case, right to the top, and yet there's not enough action, little if any. Uh, the scam continues, and in the case of this person, uh, just the, the the immorality that Canadians are being priced out by this scheme. And uh, and so how does it happen? Look, uh, I should, it's important to say the bank says that they, they are at the forefront internationally of cracking down. They will kick out, you know, clients and do that they find to be caught up in this. But in my experience, they find uh, people caught up in this because of people like my whistleblower source. The bigger picture here as my, uh, you know, academic and criminologist, former RCMP experts say is, look, okay, banks are a little bit of a law onto themselves in Canada. That's very clear. But at the end of the day, this is on Minister Christia Freeland's plate, the Minister of Finance, uh, she runs Sintrack essentially. If uh, it's it's no secret now, any amount of academics have sort of followed my work by now, and they're saying hmm. Canada is a haven for organized crime because Sintrack knows everything yet can do nothing. The RCMP is doing nothing, and uh, it's open season. You would have to have the Prime Minister and Christia Freeland give Sintrack and the RCMP teeth and actually say this money laundering that's pricing out Canadians has to end, or at least be regulated a little bit. You can read more in the Bureau. Sam Cooper with us, founder of the Bureau, That's best-selling author, Thanks award-winning investigative As journalist. Always, His latest you, fake Chinese income mortgages fuel Toronto real estate word. bubble, HS, uh, HSBC bank leaks. Uh, Sam, more great work. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
Thank you, sir. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one from Frank, tongue firmly planted in cheek. Could someone please tell the city worker that keeps putting a flyer on my car that I am not at all interested in seeing a new band called Parking Violation appearing at the courthouse? Good night. Keep right except to pass. 